So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, if you can believe that or not. Uh, I will ask you actually to stand with me as we uh, read the word and read this section of scripture together. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, the message tonight is called the perfect sacrifice. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. You may be seated. Father, thank you again for this evening and this time. Thank you for your written word that is living and active. Uh, Father, may it do its perfect work in our hearts and in our minds tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would just have this way or have your way with this message. It is your message to your people. It is not my own. And Father, may you just speak powerfully. May we be people that uh, respond to your word, that are not merely hearers of it, but that we would be doers of it. And let it just minister to our hearts and to our souls tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 18 wonderful verses here uh, in this scripture tonight. And we're just going to get right into it. In verse 1, it says that for the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Some interesting words here uh, used in the Greek to help us get really kind of a better um, understanding uh, of what's going on. Law is the Greek word namas. Uh, it's a translation of the Hebrew word Torah, which you're all familiar with, which is basically uh, the law. It is the first five books of Moses. Uh, in this context, we could say that it's even a little bit greater uh, referring to the sacrificial system. It's referring to the old covenant, if you will. That's uh, kind of the broader idea. And that law is a shadow, a mere shadow, skia in the Greek, S-K-I-A, and it refers to a literal shadow that is cast, or it could just refer to the shade uh, that is provided by, by something. And then the word uh, form, the word form in the Greek is icon, E-I-K-O-N, uh, and it's where we get the English word icon, I-C-O-N, that we're familiar with, maybe with those um, from a Catholic background or an Orthodox background, a, a picture of Jesus or Mary, a, of a saint, um, something that would really cause us to reflect back on, on the person. But the idea is that it's an image uh, and that it's, it's basically uh, a representation. It's the reality. It's the actual form of something. And that's sort of the juxtaposition here between the shadow, 
the skia and the icon, the actual form, the actual substance. We know that if we're to go outside on a sunny day, and uh, let's say it's the afternoon, we can be standing, the sun hits us, and what's cast to the ground beside us, our shadow. Now, the shadow might look a lot like we do, at least the outline and the form. We might be able to tell maybe uh, male or female. We might be able to tell if it's, uh, you know, an adult or a child. But beyond that, it's not going to give us much detail of who the real person is. We're not going to see the face. We're not going to see skin tone. We're not going to see eyes and a nose and really any other defining details. The shadow is merely uh, a, a sort of a picture of the actual reality. But the shadow does have a point as well. The, the shadow really tells us that there is a reality. It says that there's something there. Uh, if we were to be coming around the corner and we see a shadow, we see this in scary movies a lot of times, right? Coming around the corner and there's a shadow of something coming. Well, we know that there's actually something there. The shadow is cast from the light, but there's an actual substance uh, of something behind it. And shadows, in the Bible at least, refer uh, and show us a sign that there's a reality. The law and the sacrifices that we've learned as we've gone through the book of Hebrews really point ultimately to something greater. Uh, and we've seen that uh, as Jesus has been declared greater than the angels and you know, greater than Melchizedek and on and on. We see that all of the things, even in the tabernacle, all the articles really pointed to something greater. They were copies, they were shadows of what was the heavenly reality. But here we can really see that this shadow uh, is going to be pointing us towards Christ. These sacrifices that were offered year after year perpetually are really pointing uh, for us towards a greater reality, really to lead us to Christ. Paul in Galatians 3.24 says that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. The law had a purpose, but it of course wasn't the end. The shadow of the law points us to the reality of Christ. And as verse 1 continues, it says that the, the law can never, never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. The law can never take away our sins because it was never meant to take away our sins. That wasn't the method, that wasn't the way that God had intended it to be. If sacrifices could do that, we would be saved, we would be sanctified by our own works. We could just go offer enough sacrifices and then everything would be okay. But we know that works is not how we are saved, amen? We are saved by grace, through faith, the gift of God, that no man can boast. And then verse 2 gives us sort of a, a almost humorous question, asked rhetorically. It says, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? Sometimes I chuckle when I read verses like this in the Bible. It's a heavy section, no doubt, but it's pretty obvious that, okay, well, if that worked, if the sacrifices took away sins and they were no more, well, then we wouldn't keep having to have them over and over, right? Okay, well, since we do have to have them over and over, that means that the sacrifices clearly don't work. Animal sacrifices were not sufficient. One wasn't sufficient. Two weren't sufficient. A thousand weren't sufficient. Year after year, these sacrifices were offered continually, but they never cleansed the worshiper. And that system can never make perfect, it says. Albert Einstein is uh, usually famously quoted as saying that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. I think many of you are familiar with that. But imagine being uh, in the mindset of a Jewish person at this time, at least before Christ, and having to do these sacrifices year after year after year. Would that not be kind of the definition of insanity? You're over and over offering these sacrifices, expecting to be cleansed, expecting this perfect forgiveness from God, but it just wouldn't work. It wouldn't be enough. And there was no other way. And what a kind of a hopeless plight of existence that would be to have to go year after year. And in some cases, more than that. We'll get into it in a little bit. But, but most often, uh, scholars think that when it says year after year, it's referring to the yearly uh, atoning sacrifice on Yom Kippur. But we know that sacrifices were offered much more than just one day a year. But imagine doing that over and over and over. 
And if that work would never bring the people to God, why would they do them? Maybe more importantly, the question we could ask is, why would God institute that? Why would God institute that as the way to cover sins? Verse 3 tells us, but in those sacrifices, again, likely referring to the, the annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, where there was an animal that was slaughtered and sacrificed for the sins of all the people for the entire year, by those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what does it say the purpose is? It's a reminder. It is a reminder to us. The Greek word is anamnesis, and it's to recollect or to remember uh, a specific event. That word is used uh, in the Gospels, specifically in Luke, with the account of the Last Supper. We just learned this on, on last Friday, or excuse me, Good Friday, not last Friday, Good Friday, as we went through that. And Jesus, as he institutes communion, he takes the bread and the wine and he breaks it and he blesses it and he says, do this in remembrance of me. And in that context, we could say that it is a good remembrance. We're supposed to reflect back on the sacrifice of Christ. But that same word here is used, remembrance, that it is a yearly remembrance of the sin of the people. Now, it's great when we get to remember the sacrifice of Christ. No doubt that that was a heavy thing and had some serious implications, but we can look back on that. We can remember uh, with thankful hearts and with gratitude. But imagine having to constantly go back and remember our sins. Imagine that being something that was on the forefront of our minds. Again, it would be really a, a negative reminder. But it's something that God wanted his people to remember. There was a purpose to it. I think there's two reasons. One, it's a reminder to us of the severity of our sin. The severity of our sin and really the, the consequence that it carries, that it is an affront to a most holy God. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is what? Death. That the wages of sin is death. And so it's a reminder of the severity and it's a reminder of the consequence of the sins that we've committed. And I think it's also a reminder that we can't remove our own sin. This sacrificial system that wasn't perfect was a constant reminder that we can't do it ourselves that that is not the way that we come to God. That is not the way that we experienced salvation. Romans 3, 10 to 12, just a small portion actually says that there is none righteous and there is none who does good. And scripture also tells us that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to the Lord. Isaiah 64, verse 6. And brothers and sisters, I think that we need reminders like this. I think we need reminders of our sin more often than we get them, more often than we think about them. I think we tend to forget our sins pretty easily, do we not? I mean, I can raise my hand, but a lot of us tend to just forget. No other brave souls are willing to raise their hand. It's just so easy to forget our sins. And of course, the Lord does forget our sin. Someone's holding two hands up, so I don't know what that means. But um, of course, the Lord does forgive our sins, yes, but... We often, I think, in our culture today, in our Christian culture, we sort of downplay it. We don't really uh, think about the severity of what's going on. We also tend to see the sins in others really well, don't we? Or is that just me? I can see my sin in someone else really well. I'm really good at that. Uh, and we just kind of learned about this as we've gone through Matthew on Sundays and, and Matthew 7 about judging, about the speck in our eye, and, or excuse me, our brother's eye, and the log in our own eye. And we don't need the reminder of sin to feel condemnation. I want to make that point clear. That's not the purpose of it. But we need a reminder of sin so that we remember the weight of it, that we remember what God thinks about sin. And what are our sins? I could say that a lot of times sins are categorized two ways, sins of commission and sins of omission. 
Most of you have probably heard that before. Sins we commit, things that we do that we are not supposed to do. And then we have sins of omission when we should do something or we know the right thing to do and then we don't do it to that person. It is sin, scripture tells us. We can think of the seven deadly sins. We can think of the 10 commandments and think, you know, these are things that, that of course we're not supposed to break. But I was actually reading a, a magazine article this week. Um, I still read magazines, by the way. I'm probably in the very uh, minority of people. You know, it's that old thing, you used to get a subscription, it comes in the mail, right? It's a little paper with pictures and words on it. Few of you guys know what I'm talking about. Most people my generation and younger have no clue what a magazine is. But anyway, I was reading a magazine and, and the cover article uh, that was there on that magazine was called Commonly Tolerated Sins. And of course, I was preparing for this message. Well, that's kind of interesting. Maybe the Lord has something there for me. So of course, I read through the article. I'm just gonna read through uh, the list, just some of the sins that this magazine article talked about. Commonly tolerated sins, really kind of in our modern uh, Christian culture. I won't say our secular culture. I'm saying within the church culture, these are commonly tolerated sins. Ingratitude, envy, gluttony, ignorance, laziness, harshness, divisiveness, gossip, impatience, most of you are guilty of that as you want me to finish this list up, I'm sure. Uh, dishonoring authorities, crude joking, judgmentalism, false humility, and worldliness. It's no wonder that scripture tells us that there is no one righteous, not even one. As I read through this list, I started kind of mentally checking off, yep, that's me, that's me, that's me. It's not always easy to admit, but... Those are things that the Lord sees as sin. And all throughout scripture, we see lists of sins that are really kind of compiled. And you'll notice that there's some, even within the same list, it'll talk about divisiveness, kind of pitting a brother against a brother, and it pairs it right alongside murder. I can be guilty of divisiveness. Sometimes I don't even really realize it in the fact, or in the moment, right, when I'm doing that. But then I think, that's lumped with the same thing as murder? What about gossip? What about some of these other commonly tolerated sins? We can think, well, I haven't murdered anyone lately. Uh, I haven't made at least a physical idol and set it up in my home and started bowing down and worshiping it. I haven't maybe actually committed the physical act of adultery. You know, I haven't done these major things, so I'm okay. But of course, all these minor things God sees. And these are things that we need to think about, that all these sins carry the same weight and the same just punishment is due us when we commit even the smallest of these sins. And even in our church culture, and I think we have these commonly tolerated sins where we just, for whatever reason, don't focus on it. We have uh, seeker-sensitive churches that would like to tell you that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Full stop, end of story. There's nothing else. That's it. That's the gospel. And that you don't have to worry about those sins. That's just kind of a little error of your way. And, oh, that's okay. You messed up. You know, just try again. That'll be okay. But that's not the gospel, brothers and sisters. What does it say was required in the Old Covenant? The sacrifice of animal, the blood sacrifice of animal year after year. And that's why we need the Bible. We need the Bible to remind us, in a sense, of the weight and the severity of our sin. I'm going to get to the good part. Don't worry. I'm not trying to beat you guys up. But I don't think that we reflect back on the seriousness of sin enough. We can just reflect and say, well, we're, we're believers. We uh, live under grace, so... Well, if I just do these things, well, maybe it's not really that bad. God's going to forgive me anyway. Paul, of course, addresses that in one of his letters and says, may it never be, may that never be what we would do. So we no longer have the visual reminder year after year. 
I know Pastor Michael covered a little bit of this last week as we talked about sacrifices, and I'm not saying this to be uh, crude or for shock value, but has anyone ever seen an animal slaughtered or sacrificed? It's not the prettiest of sights. I grew up in Norco, don't judge me, but we raised animals for food. Fellow Norco residents, I see chuckling here too. Um, we raised animals for food. And after a certain period of months, it's time to slaughter the animal. And it's not the prettiest of sights. I've also had an opportunity to travel to countries all over the world where they uh, you know, welcome visitors. I did mission trips and they would welcome us and they would perform these large ceremonies and they would create these you know, big uh, fancy meals for us, but they would slaughter an animal a lot of times uh, that same day or that afternoon that they would prepare for us. And there was really a big ceremony around it. But when you see an animal that is slaughtered with uh, its neck slit and uh, blood drained, there's really no other way to say it. Again, I hope I don't gross anybody out and hope dinner has settled for an hour or two before you came here. But it's not a pretty sight. Now, that happens, and we know that, okay, well, there's a purpose to this, right? I'm going to get a meal out of this. This animal has actually sacrificed its life, not willingly, but it has sacrificed its life so that I can have food. But now, imagine if an animal had to be sacrificed really for no practical purpose, not for food, but simply because you or I were guilty, that we were guilty of sin, and that you had to basically watch that happen. Imagine that you had to go pick out your own animal at least once a year, if not more, that you had to bring it here to the church, up to the stage, and the pastors would sacrifice the animal because of your sin. Put yourself in that place for a minute. I would imagine that after you did that, the next year you'd probably do your best to sin a little bit less because you wouldn't want to come back here and do that again. But that's the picture that the Bible talks about. The wages of sin is death, and there is death that is required. Blood sacrifice is required for our sin. So we talked about us slaughtering an animal. But what if we had to kill a human being? What if we had to kill an innocent human being in our place? That's exactly what God did when he sent his son. That's exactly what happened. He sacrificed his son because of the sin that you and I committed. Because the righteous requirement of the law had to be fulfilled. And because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The word impossible is a Greek word, um, which means, you ready for this? Impossible. <laughs> impossible. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, sacrifices in the Old Testament and the Hebrew idea was the idea of atonement. You've heard of that before. And it literally means a covering, a covering over something. So, you make the sacrifice to cover the sin. You can think of it as maybe paying a fine. Let's say you uh, get a speeding ticket um, and the fine comes in the mail. You either go to court or not if you want to fight it, but you have a fine to pay, okay? I was going 60 and a 25. Not that I was doing that, of course. But 60 and a 25, it's a $350 fee. I write the check, I pay the fine, but the sin, if you will, is still there. And there's going to be other repercussions of that. My insurance premiums are probably going to go up. There's going to be something on my driving record. If I'm in a career where I drive a vehicle, I might not be able to have a job because I have a point on my record. There's other repercussions of that. So the point is that it doesn't get taken away. The fine is covered, but it doesn't completely take away the sin or the offense that happened. And that's the Old Testament idea. It was covered. It wasn't taken away permanently. It was just sort of covered. 
We could also think of the idea of when we go to purchase something and we put it on our credit card. You know, we walk up to the register, it's $100, I swipe my credit card. Well, it's covered. I can take that and walk out of the store and go home with it. But guess what? The credit card bill is coming at the end of the month. It's not fully paid yet. It's just covered for a temporary period of time. And so this sacrifice, this atoning, as it's talked about here, this covering, that can never actually take away sins. Because again, it was never meant to be. The word take away is a Greek word, aero, A-I-R-E-O. And the root of that word has the idea to pick up or to lift up or to take off. And so the, the difference with taking away a sin versus making an atonement and a covering, one is the covering just, you know, it's like kind of sort of putting a basket over it. We're just going to hide it, pretend it's not here. But taking away is lifting it up. And it's kind of the idea of lifting the burden. It's taken away off of us. The burden is no longer there. We'll get more into that as we move further along. Again, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. It can cover it. But one thing it can't do, it can't pick it up. It can't carry it away. And it cannot lift the weight of the burden of sin. So in that case, how do we satisfy the wrath of a holy and just God? Well, we don't. Humanly speaking, you and I don't, but Jesus does. Verse 5 says, therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, now the word therefore ties us directly into the previous verse, so I'm going to read it again this way. Therefore, since it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins... When he, Jesus, comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Proof here that Jesus Christ has come into the world as a man, fully God, yet fully man, come in the flesh. A body was prepared for him. Colossians 2.9 tells us that in him, Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And that man was perfect, he was unblemished, he was sinless. He was able to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Romans 8 verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. On to verse 6. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. God takes no pleasure in these sacrifices. They were never meant to please him. That wasn't the purpose. They were simply the requirement that he established to cover sin. But he takes no pleasure in the sacrifice. And actually throughout the scriptures, God condemns those who are offering sacrifices in a wrong manner or those who are offering sacrifices, maybe in the right manner, but with the wrong heart, the wrong motives. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise, Psalm 51. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea 6, verse 6. And Isaiah 1, verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Verse 7 tells us, Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. This is a quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. Why don't we turn there together? Psalm 40 somewhere around the midway point in your Bible. 
So the author of Hebrews uh, quotes the Old Testament quite a bit, quotes it from the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it's not quoted directly as Hebrew, but it is quoted as Greek. It's almost word for word, minus just a, a couple tweaks. But Psalm 40, verse 6, says, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. It says, My ears you have opened. That's a little bit different than what we read in Hebrews. Uh, again, the, the writer quoting from the Septuagint uh, translates this different. Interesting to note that when it talks about the ears may be opened, it may have a relation to uh, Exodus 21. We learn the idea of the servant who uh, would voluntarily uh, choose to stay on with the master and have their ear pierced. And the idea being that the servant's ear was always open to uh, the word of his master, always there to do his will. Sort of an interesting idea there. Now, Psalm 40, of course, was uh, penned by David. And that's the original author, of course, of this. And as a man, David is speaking personally here. And he's saying, my sacrifices and my meal offerings, you have not desired. Burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come. In the book of the scroll, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. I delight to do your will. And your law is within my heart. He's referring to the fact that he's, he's willing, that he's an obedient servant. And that the delight of his heart is to do the will of God. And from the human perspective, we, we see that will. And, and really, that should be the desire of our heart. That we should say, oh Lord, I delight to do your will, oh God. I put in my notes, what God wanted and still wants is our obedience. It is the only sacrifice that is pleasing and acceptable to our God. And I asked myself this week, and I will ask you, I always ask myself lots of hard questions when I study, and then I get to come and ask them to you as well. So you're welcome for that. But let me ask you, is there something that God wants you to do that you have been disobedient to? Or can you confidently say that you have come to do his will? Maybe there's something that he's been nudging you to do. Maybe uh, it's an act of kindness that you need to perform to someone. Maybe there's reconciliation with a friend or with a family member that you've been reluctant to initiate. Maybe it's a kind gesture. It's a gift you need to give to someone. Maybe it's a confession that you need to make. Maybe it's a commitment that you need to keep. Whatever that is, I would just encourage you to spend some time with the Lord and say, here I am, Lord. I have come to do your will, O God. Now, the writer of Hebrews quotes this from Psalm 40 from David, but then ascribes it to Jesus at his incarnation. The word written, as it says here, in Greek has the idea of a decree or a prescription, where it says in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. This was God's decreed plan. This wasn't something that Jesus did and then later somebody went back and wrote and said, oh yeah, this is what we wrote of him. No, this was a prescription. This was ahead of time. This was decreed by God. This is the will that the father had for his son. And Jesus was the only one, unlike you and I, that can truly say, I have come to do your will, O God. He is the only one that can do that perfectly. He's the only one that always did the will of his father, John 6, 38. It's hard, I think, for myself and probably for you to imagine a life lived in perfect obedience, is it not? Perfect obedience is something that we will never attain here on earth. But we think that Jesus did live that life, but maybe even more than that, Jesus lived not just a life of perfect obedience, but he died a life of perfect obedience. That was the ultimate will of God. Philippians 2.8 tells us that, that being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that is what true obedience looks like, brothers and sisters. Beyond what we think that we can try to muster up and be obedient in our minor things, we have struggles 
reconciling with a brother or sister, forgiving someone, whatever that would be. But Jesus took obedience to the cross. He took obedience to death. And again, it was the will of the Father, sometimes difficult for us to understand. The Father's will included sending his son to the earth to be a perfect example for us, to be an obedient follower. The Father's will also including, included sending Jesus to be really just an example of what love looks like. But if there was no sacrifice, then all those other things would be pointless. There would be no purpose for sending him to earth if the final culmination wasn't a perfect sacrifice. We would be without hope, we would be lost, we would have no access to God without salvation and without the forgiveness of our sins. Back to Hebrews verse nine, it says he takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Fun little tidbit, by the way, that's actually the only time in the book of Hebrews that Jesus Christ, those two words together, appear. But notice that it says that we have been sanctified. This is in the perfect tense. This here is not an ongoing thing, but we have been sanctified. And as we think of this shadow imagery, it's picked up again here. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Again, we've learned in the previous chapters all the, the articles and all the things of the tabernacle were these shadows. They were images of the actual heavenly things, the reality that was in heaven. And the writer has basically told us all the bad news about the sacrifices, how they could never make us perfect, how they will, will never cease, they will never cleanse our conscience conscience. But here he finally tells us the good news, that those sacrifices, that sacrificial system was the shadow of the greater sacrifice to come. And there would be just one sacrifice, the greater sacrifice of Christ. And he, Christ, he takes away the first, he takes away the shadow, if you will, the yearly atonement, and he establishes the second takes away the first and establishes the second. He establishes the perfect final sacrifice. When he took his last breath on the cross, he cried out famously, it is finished. It is finished. His job here on earth was finished. The sacrificial system was finished. There were many, many things that were finished. Victory over the enemy. Victory over death. Faith through perfect obedience to the law. Finished. We no longer have to strive and keep every letter. We are saved by faith. Paid in full. The weight and burden of sin. The wrath for its perpetrators. No longer covered but now lifted away from all those who put their confidence in the finished work of Christ. He removes the old covenant. He ushers in the new covenant. Look back at verse one. It says that the sacrifices can never make perfect those who draw near. That verb is active, meaning ongoing, can never make perfect. It's an active, ongoing thing. It's never gonna work. But as I mentioned in verse 10 here, we can see that it is a perfect work. We have been made perfect. We have been sanctified. It's done. It's finished. There's no more work on our end. Our sanctification has been perfectly accomplished by Christ. One sacrifice for all men for all time. And now as we look at verse 11, we take a shift. We're going to see Jesus fulfilling another role. We see him fulfilling the role as the sacrifice, but now we will see him fulfilling the role of the mediator. Last week, we looked at that idea with the covenant or the will. We looked at Jesus as the, the giver of the will and also the mediator of the will. And similarly, he is the sacrifice here, but he is also the mediator 
Verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Now, for those of you that were with us as we went through the book of Exodus um, some time ago, I can't remember. It's been a while. I I think we studied it for like seven years, but um, we learned all the different furnishings, all the different articles of the tabernacle week after week after week after week. And we looked at how they all pointed to Christ. You'll remember that um, inside of the tent of meeting that there was, um, there was the altar of incense, there was the table of showbread, there was the lampstand. Remember what wasn't there? Well, maybe you don't remember, but I'll tell you what wasn't there. A chair. There was no chair. Why would that be? Well, the priest's job was never done. The priest never had an opportunity to sit down and to rest. These verses tell us day after day that the priests, that the priest, ooh, the priests stood offering sacrifices. They never had a chance to sit down. But we contrast that with Christ, who is no longer standing. It says that he has sat down at the right hand of God because his work is finished. There's no need for the perpetual sacrifices. He has sat down at the right hand of God and he is waiting. Verse 13 tells us that he is sitting down until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. It's another reference to Psalm 110. That's verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. In the opening chapter of this book, Psalm 110 was also referenced where it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And now we pick it up again here. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, while Jesus' work is finished, the full implications of all of that are still being worked out. So he's sitting at the right hand of God until the fullness of time, if you will, until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. It's similar to the idea in verse 10 where the word sanctified was in the perfect tense There, it was presented as an accomplished fact. It was done. But here, it's actually mentioned as a continuing process. Verse 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The work of Christ is finished, it's perfect, the sacrifice was perfect, but the continuing process of sanctification in your life and in my life as a believer is an ongoing process that will keep happening and it will never be finished this side of heaven. What does change uh, is the ongoing sanctification process in our life. What doesn't change is the finished work of Christ. When we're saved and we're forgiven, it's complete. It's finished. We are no more saved uh, in five years from now than we are today. From the moment we accept the Lord on day one, we are as saved as we are ever going to be. So whether we're on day one of a Christian or day 1,001 or 10,001 or 100,001, we will be the same amount of saved. I don't even know the right word to say. I'm just going to make up a word. The, The same level of savedness from day one to day 10,001. But we will be sanctified, and there is a difference there. And Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, we're told, but his work isn't entirely over. It's often been called a, a working rest or rest at work. The Lord didn't just sit down and cease to do anything and say, okay, my job's done now. I can just kind of take a snooze. I can uh, not really pay attention to what's going on. No, we know that he still performs the work of the high priest. We've learned that in this book, uh, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, and Hebrews 7, 25, talk about his work as a high priest and daily offering prayers and interceding for the saints. And so the sanctification process in our lives, how does it happen? It does so through the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, After those days, says the Lord, 
I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So verse 15 begins a quotation of Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. It's Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. And it's really a famous uh, prophecy of the new covenant. And the author is using it here to assure us that the sacrifice of Christ has ushered in the new covenant. We are now in this age. There is no question. It is here. It is now. The moment that Christ died, the new covenant was there. And these verses out of Jeremiah 31 give us really two important pieces of the puzzle um, that was the Old Testament sacrificial system and, and what's going to be the new system now. There were two things that were missing from the Old Testament system and two things that are found in abundance in the new covenant. The first one is empowerment. Notice that verse 15 mentions the Holy Spirit. That's where the empowerment comes from. Acts 1.8 tells us that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And the Lord says, this is the covenant that I will make with them. I will put my laws upon their heart. And on their mind, I will write them. The Lord is the one doing it. It's no longer up to man. We no longer have to offer sacrifices. He is the one that has provided the new and the better way. Instead of putting his laws on stone tablets, they are placed in the very center of the believer's being so that there is an inner impulse that both delights in knowing his law and doing his will. Distinct from the law, that is the old covenant, the spirit tells us not just what to do, but it empowers us to do it. Amen? The second thing is forgiveness. And that's really perhaps the greatest message that's conveyed in these verses. It is the forgiveness of sins. That is the purpose of Christ's sacrifice. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more, says the Lord. You know, there's only one thing that God forgets. And those are the things that he chooses to forget. And praise the Lord that that is my sins and that is your sins. The Lord has chosen to forget these things. By the grace of God, he has chosen to forget them. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do you believe that tonight? I heard one amen. That's a good thing. It was said that Clara Barton, organizer of the American Red Cross, was never known to harbor resentment toward anyone. On one occasion, a friend recalled for her an incident that had taken place some years before. But Clara seemed not to remember. Don't you remember the wrong that was done to you? Asked the friend. Clara answered calmly, no, I distinctly remember forgetting that. Clara willed to forgive and to forget but God does one better. He really does forgive and forgive. And it is the one thing, brothers and sisters, that we cannot do for ourselves, forgiveness. It is the one thing that we cannot completely absolve ourselves from sin. Yet interestingly enough, we're called to do so for others. The one thing we can't do for ourselves, but that God instructs us to do for others. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Ephesians 4, 32. And Colossians 3, 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you tonight um, with all the humility that we can muster with grateful hearts, Father. And we just want to say thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your perfect obedience 
for your willingness to come and die a criminal's death on a cross? Lord, we deserve the death that you took on. It is our sins that held you to that cross. And it's your great love for us that led you there. So Father, we just thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, that we have forgiveness of sins, that through faith in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins, we have access to our God, that we can inherit eternal life. And Lord, if there's those that have strayed and or wandered away, Lord, may they come back to you. May they seek that forgiveness. And if you've never committed yourself to the Lord, if you've never repented of your sin, if you have never cried out to God and asked for that forgiveness, uh, I pray you would know that it's a simple thing to do. Jesus went through great pain and great suffering, separation from his father to bring you back, to buy you back, to forgive you of your sins, and to, for, to atone for all that you have done. And if that's you, would you cry out to the Lord from the depths of your heart? Would you ask him to forgive you? Would you repent? Would you turn from your ways and seek to follow him? And Lord, for those of us that are believers, Lord, the, the many saints that are gathered here tonight that are listening online, that are listening even after, Father, would you strengthen and equip us Lord, I pray that you would help us to reflect upon the weight of our sin. Not that we would feel condemnation, but Lord, that we would just have all the more gratitude for your sacrifice for us, Lord. Um, I pray that that's all we would take away tonight is just the simple reminder that you came and that you died for our sin, that you took on the punishment that we deserved. So we thank you for that, Lord. Be with us, uh, bless us as we go about our week. Help us to draw close to you. Help us to do your will. Help us, Lord, to practice forgiveness as you have forgiven us. So help us to forgive others that would trespass against us. In Jesus' name.